turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians and the first chapter. Now we're going to read We're going to read in that first chapter the short passage from verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we finish our reading at the end of that 20th verse. And we trust that God will give us understanding of his infallible and inerrant word. Now I must confess I enter this particular passage with a great deal of fear and trepidation. This is a passage that is crammed full of doctrine. And to be honest... I would rather try, try to deal with this passage in about a month's sermons rather than in one. So all I'm able to do today is give us a brief overview of this particular passage. In the early part of the chapter, as we saw last week, Paul stated his reasons for being so thankful to God for the Colossian Christians. And he prays for them. And you'll remember that what he specifically prayed for, for the Colossians, was that they might have an increase in knowledge. Not a head knowledge, but a knowledge of Christ. You see, Paul is aware of the difficulties that they were facing especially as they were facing false teachers who were seeking to to teach error about the sufficiency of Christ amongst them. You see, these heretics were very clever. They didn't dismiss Christ entirely. They didn't deny Christ. They simply said, that Christ was not sufficient. You needed something else, something on top of Christ. 
Now, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1 form a complete unity of thought and are perhaps the most beautiful expression of the preeminence of Christ in all things. Now, some people have suggested that this is an early Christian hymn or an early Christian creed, something that the the disciples learned uh, to give them doctrine. There's no reason, however, to suggest that this is anything other than the, the Apostle Paul, as he speaks about Christ, being overwhelmed with his glory and his majesty and with all that he had done for his people in salvation. Now, the passage falls very neatly into two sections which correspond to each other in form. In other words, the same expressions are used and in the same order. Now, the first part shows how Christ is preeminent to the created universe, and the second demonstrates his preeminence in the work of redemption and reconciliation. So let's dip into these verses. And the first thing that we see is the preeminence of Christ in creation. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, we come back to this heresy. There were those in the church who were seeking to teach that Christ was not sufficient and they needed some special wisdom, some kind of magical knowledge. These Gnostic people uh, believed that that there was a great gap between man on earth and God. And so they needed lots of different intermediaries, these particular spirits that would mediate the goodness of God and the love of God through to man. Paul shows them that the glory of Christ is far superior to everything else in the created universe. So let's have a look at it. He is the image of the invisible God. So the Lord Jesus Christ is outside the created universe as the eternal image of the invisible God. Now what does that mean? Well, it means simply this, that although the Bible says no man has seen God at any time. And that's true. In the Old Testament, people did not see God. You remember how uh, Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock so that he didn't see God, but he saw only his back as God passed by him. God dwells in light unapproachable. And so if men are to see God, men and women are to see God and to know God, understand who he is, then they need God to be revealed to them. He is eternally the image of God 
and he is said to be the firstborn of every creature. Now, there are some who say, well, this means that Jesus was created. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that he is the firstborn. There was nothing before him, and what came after him came after him, obviously. So there was nothing before him. He is the firstborn of all creation. And he is the one through whom the universe came into being. You see, men could not know God. They could strive after God. They could reach up to God, but they could never know God until Christ. Christ is the one who is the image of the invisible God. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, many people have their own notions about what God is like. Many people have their own particular views of, if there is a God, what is like. And they come up with all sorts of crazy notions about who God might be or what he might be like. But the only true evidence that we have of what God is like is in the face of Jesus Christ. It is when we see Christ that we see God because he is the image of the invisible God. It's a strange concept, isn't it, really? How can you have an image of something that is invisible? But Christ reveals God. He shows to men and women what God is really like. And that's what Paul wants to emphasize to these believers in Colossae. He says, you want to know God? Well, know Christ. And if you know Christ, you know everything there is to know about God. You don't need anything else. You don't need any intermediary between you and God. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. He is outside the created universe as the eternal image of the invisible God. He is God revealed in visible form to men. That's what Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2 and verse 9. But he is the one through whom everything came into being. Everything that was created was created with reference to Jesus Christ and it must serve his purpose. Look at what Paul says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and notice the description he gives here. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that takes in all these angelic beings that these Gnostics talked about, and he's saying, look, all these things that you say we need to know more about God all these things were created by Christ. So how can you need anything other than Christ when he is the one who created all these things? He says, And he is before all things, 
uh, sorry, all things were created through him and for him. I wonder, have we ever really considered that sufficiently? Everything in the universe was not only created by Christ, but it was created for him, for his glory, for his purposes, created for him. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. We know how Christ is despised and rejected. We know how people who follow Christ in our society are mocked and ridiculed as though somehow we were, we were incapable of standing on our own feet and we need a crutch to lean on. No. Everything in the universe, in the heavens and in the earth, everything was created by him and for him. And everything must serve his purpose. Not only man, but the physical creatures and indeed the very angels of heaven. Everything was created for him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But more than that, he is the only one that gives any purpose or meaning to the universe. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why does this universe not tear itself apart? Because it's being held together by Christ. It's being held together by him. It is fulfilling his purposes. There is a unity and a purpose in the seeming chaos of nature and the chaos of history because everything hangs together. Everything holds together in him. No wonder Paul speaks about the preeminence of Christ. He is the great one. He is the preeminent one. He created everything and he holds everything together. That should give us great comfort. We read and we hear on television programs and so on. We read stuff on the internet about how this world has only about 10 years left before it all destroys itself because of global warming. I'm not a scientist. I know nothing about global warming. I don't want to know anything about it. But I do know this, is that whether this world, this universe, comes to an end in 10 years or in 10,000 years, it will do so at the time and in the purpose of our great God and his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why worry? Why be fearful when we know that all things are in the hands of the one who has saved us? Why worry when all things are in his hands 
and under his control. He gives meaning to the universe, and there is a unity and a purpose, even though it seems that there is chaos and disorder. So that's the preeminence of Christ in creation. The second thing that we see here is the preeminence of Christ in redemption. Paul continues to describe the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ by showing how he is not only preeminent over creation and providence, and I should have mentioned that word before, providence, creation and providence. He made it and he continues to sustain it. But more importantly for the believer, he is supreme over the whole work of redemption. The Apostle Paul says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the head of the church. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. He says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. He is described as being the head organically, and believers make up the body, the church. As we read in verse 18 here, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Well, of course he has the preeminence. After all, he was the one who founded the church. The church is Christ's church. Christ is the head of the body. The church, the body, receives its life from the head. The body receives its life from Christ. If we have any spiritual life at all, it is because we have received it through Christ. We have received it from him. He is the founder of the church. He is the redeemer of the church. He is the one who purchased the church with his own blood. He is the head of the body. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, he's, that the Apostle Paul, he speaks about Christ being head because of his resurrection. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself uh, all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is head and king of his church. He founded it, he purchased it, and he is also the head I don't even know whether this is a proper word or not, but he is head of the church governmentally. In other words, he governs the church. Uh, 
He rules as king over his church. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3 says this, verse 23. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. He is the head over his church. What does that mean? Well, it ought to mean for every believer that the rules that he observes are the rules that Christ sets. The way a church is governed must be according to the word of Christ because he is the governor, he is the head of the church, and he rules the church. And this preeminence of Christ is related specifically to the resurrection of the dead. It is from Christ that the body receives its life. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the vine and the vine and the branches, and the branches receive their life from the vine. And the body of Christ, his people, us individually, if we are believers, we receive our life from Christ. And that very statement points to the resurrection of the dead. For if Christ did not rise, then he is not alive. And if he is not alive, then we cannot receive life from him. That's obvious, is it not? It's the resurrection, it is from the resurrection of the dead that we receive our life. Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. If he is the church's king and head, it follows quite naturally that the church is to submit to him in every aspect of its life and work. And to help us in that, he's given us his word. All that is necessary for the foundation and the nurturing of the church has been vested in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that the church needs. There is nothing that the individual believer needs that is not found in Christ. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. You see, these people who said you need something else, he said, no, you don't. Everything that you need, everything that the church needs is to be found in Christ. And Paul wants those who were teaching that Christ alone was not sufficient to realize their error and to exalt Christ alone. And then he goes on to talk about reconciliation. It is only in Jesus Christ that there can be reconciliation with God. Before the, before the fall, there was harmony and unity in the created universe. There was nothing to harm nor destroy. Through the work of Christ on the cross, sin has been conquered, 
Peace has been made and harmony has been restored. From his exalted position at the right hand of God, the crucified and risen Savior rules the universe for the, uh, for the, for the benefit of his own blood-bought people and the glory of the sovereign God. And so he goes on to talk about the preeminence of Christ in reconciliation. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the reconciliation of which the Apostle Paul speaks was not just an abstract theory. It had become a reality in the lives of those believers in Colossae, those who had been born again by the Spirit of God. And Paul wants them to realize just what a wonderful and glorious thing had happened to them. He reminds them of what they were. There are three things that characterize the way of life of these Colossian Christians and indeed of every man and woman in this world. First of all, they were alienated from God. They had no relationship with God and knew nothing of who he really is. And so were we. You may have been brought up in a Christian home, but until the Holy Spirit comes into your life, until you are born again, you don't know anything of God. You may, know, you may know some facts about God, and we teach our children the facts about God, but they don't know God. They are alienated from God until that time when they come to faith in Christ. And so these Colossians were alienated from God. But not only so, they were hostile to God in the very disposition of their minds and hearts. You see, the unbeliever is not just indifferent to God. They may give that impression. If we want to speak to someone about Christ, so often they say, I'm not interested, I, I don't care. And they may give that impression of being simply indifferent to God. But Romans chapter 1 teaches us that they actually hate him. They hate God. They may not express it openly, but when you tell them that they must submit to God and to his word, then they begin to demonstrate a little bit more animosity because they want to be free to live their lives the way they please. And when they're told that they must submit to Christ, when they're told that they must repent of their sin and turn from their sin, then their hostility becomes evident. So these people in Colossae, they were alienated from God, they were hostile to God, and they did wicked things. And although sometimes we don't like to hear it, the truth is that whatever is without faith is sin. Whatever, anything without faith 
is sin. And so they commit wicked deeds. Even the very best things that unbelievers do are sinful and thus hateful to God. So he reminds them of what they were. Then he goes on to remind them of what they are now. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, they have been brought into a living relationship with Christ. A living relationship of love and fellowship with the Holy God. They are no longer strangers and pilgrims. They are members of the family of God. And perhaps we need to ask ourselves the question, do I have a living relationship with God through Christ? Do I have a living relationship with Christ through God? Or am I simply a religious person? Am I simply somebody who likes the form of worship at church? I like to be at church. I even like to hear the word of God expounded. But do I really have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know certainly that you are a child of God? That you belong to the family of God? That Christ is your older brother? And then... He reminds them of the purpose of their redemption. They had been reconciled to God so that they could be presented to the holy and sovereign God without the slightest stain of sin or corruption. And this is looking forward to that time when the believer will see Christ in glory and will be changed into his glorious likeness. One day as believers, whether that is through death or whether that is through the coming of Christ again, one day we will see him as he is. One day we will be changed into his likeness. One day all our sin and corruption and vileness will be gone and we will worship him in purity and in holiness. During the time, however, that the believer is here on earth, the child of God is to demonstrate that he has been reconciled to Christ, reconciled to God, by living a life that is separate from sin and dedicated to God. How do we show to a godless world that we belong to the family of God? How do we demonstrate that we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ? We do it as we struggle against sin, as we seek to live a life that glorifies God, as we seek to stay as far away from wickedness as it is possible for us to do, and to have a life that is dedicated to the service of Christ. Finally, he reminds them of their need to persevere in the faith. 
a true believer can never fall away. Or he will stumble. Yes, he will fall, but he will never fall away finally. If he has the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, he will endure. But it is perseverance that demonstrates the genuineness of our faith. The more we persevere in faith and in holiness, the more we go on and on in spite of difficulties, in spite of sickness, in spite of disappointments, in spite of all the things that adversely affect our lives, that we continue to love him. We continue to serve him. We continue to seek to walk in his steps. Perseverance. See, the scripture tells us, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. This is a glorious passage of concerning the preeminence of Christ. And as believers, he must be preeminent in our life. He must have preeminence in our thinking, in our speaking, in what we do, because he is the image of the invisible God.